let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. Uh, we pray that you'll help me to explain it faithfully and truly, and you help us to understand it and put it into practice in our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Many Christians love their church building. It's true of this building. I personally have quite some attachment to this church building. Uh, all four of my children were baptised here. I have done weddings, funerals for relatives, family, for friends here. Uh, maybe you have attachments to this building as well. Uh, many Christians love their church building. But sometimes it's more than a sentimental thing. Some people believe that God dwells in church buildings in a special way. They believe that church buildings are holy, that you, that you meet with God in some different way by walking into a church building. Now you see it very clearly in the, uh, in the sign that's written on the light switch just over there. It describes this area up here as the sanctuary. Uh, the sanctuary is the extra holy area. The area where God actually dwells. Now lots of people think that church buildings are special places where you can find the presence of God and meet with him in a different way from ordinary. And in the Bible, there is one very special building. A building where God was present in a special way. The building was called the temple. Now, the temple was in Jerusalem, and it, it had a long history. It dated right back to about 950 BC when Solomon had built it. About uh, 586 BC, it was destroyed, rebuilt, 515 BC. And then in 19 BC, a bloke called King Herod decided on a massive rebuilding program. It took until 63 AD, 84 years, to build this temple. And the temple that Herod built was, was extraordinary, as big as five football fields. Uh, the, the facade of the building was covered in gold plates. David, this is all ideas for you. Um, all the upper areas were made of massive white marble stones. Uh, the, the early uh, Jewish historian Josephus talks about the stones and he says that some of the stones were 67 feet long. This is just one stone. 67 feet long, 12 feet high, 18 feet wide. That's, imagine as big as the kindergarten hall, one stone. Okay? And people have got to carry it. Right? Uh, Josephus said that on a sunny day, the whole building up on the top of Mount Zion, it, 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 as it flashed in the sun with all the gold, it, it made the mountain look like it was covered in snow. An impressive building. But even more impressive than the physical aspect of this building was the spiritual aspect. God had promised to dwell in the temple in a special and different way. Yes, God is everywhere, but there was a sense in which he was in the temple in a different kind of a way. There was a true sense in which coming to the temple meant coming to the very presence of God. It was the duty of all Jews to attend the temple, to offer sacrifice, to meet with God. The temple was the very center of biblical Judaism. The temple was the place where Jewish people had access to their God, where they could be gathered together as his people, forgiven, and brought into his presence. Very special building. But when Jesus came to Jerusalem, he wasn't too positive about the temple, was he? Uh, remember he said to the leaders, you've turned the temple into a den of robbers. 
That's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 7, where God had said that he would judge and destroy the temple. Uh, Jesus said God's judgment is coming on the temple again, and he vividly portrayed that by cursing the fig tree. And so we come to Mark chapter 12. In Mark chapter 12, we meet a woman. A woman who loves the temple. A woman who's giving money to the temple. Now, she only puts in a couple of cents, but uh, when Jesus see her, sees her, he commends her. Because unlike the, the rich people who are ostentatiously putting in what they could afford, she is giving her all. Mark chapter 12 and verse 41. Have a look with me. Mark chapter 12 and verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, Put in everything, put in what she could, all she had to live on. In the next scene, Jesus is leaving the temple for the last time. Uh, some people comment on how magnificent it is, but Jesus says, it's finished. It's going to be destroyed. Chapter 13, verse 1. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Jesus walks across to the Mount of Olives with a nice view over to the temple and his disciples ask him about what he said. Same sort of way they've asked him about a lot of stuff that they haven't understood before. They ask him, well, when's it going to happen? When's the temple going to be destroyed? What warning is there going to be? Verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're all about to be fulfilled? Now I should say there is plenty of debate about the meaning of Mark 13. Some people say it's talking about the death of Jesus. Some people say it's talking about the end of the world. If you follow the NIV headings, they'll lead you astray. Um, but on its face... This is talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. That's the question they've asked, isn't it? Jesus said, temple's going to be destroyed. They said, when? How are we going to know? It's, he's, talking, he's answering a question about the destruction of the temple. And so unless we see any evidence to the contrary, that is how we ought to interpret chapter 13. Well, let's have a look. Chapter, verses 5 to 13, um, Jesus talks about what's going to happen before the temple is destroyed. And what he says, if you think about it, it, it looks like a summary of the book of Acts. A summary of church history up to the mid-60s of the first century. Looks like a summary of church history, but, but it does uh, sound a lot like the book of Acts. There are false teachers, there are wars, famines, earthquakes. The Christians get persecuted, but they speak with the Spirit's power in their defense. And meanwhile, the gospel goes out to the nations, out to the Gentiles, beyond the Jewish people to the Gentiles. Verse 5. Jesus said to them, verse 5, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. 
Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you'll stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations, to the Gentiles. Whenever you were arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand what to say. Just say whatever's given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. All right, that's before the temple is destroyed. Lots of bad stuff. They've got to stand firm. Uh, then Jesus talks about what will happen when the temple is destroyed. And he says it is going to be awful. He talks about an abomination that causes desolation. It's an image from Daniel chapter 9 in the Old Testament, an image of pagans coming to Jerusalem and defiling the temple. Luke, as he interprets this passage, says that, that pagan armies will surround Jerusalem. It's the abomination that causes desolation. Uh, Jesus says that the, the destruction of the temple will be a dreadful, dreadful time. He says, he says, pray it won't happen when you can't get away. And when you see the sign, run like crazy. Run like crazy. Verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. That is, go back to Daniel and have a look at it. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen... He's shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. Okay, so bad stuff leading up to the temple being destroyed, stand firm. Terrible stuff when the temple is destroyed, stand firm. And notice, Jesus has said that the temple will be destroyed unbelievable to a Jew but historically that is in fact what happened in uh, AD 66 a war started between Rome and the Jews there was terrible terrible loss of life a famine Jerusalem was besieged and in AD 70 Jerusalem was taken and the temple was destroyed and when it happened uh, the Christians actually took Jesus advice the early church historian Eusebius he talks about uh, uh, he, he says that when the Roman army came and surrounded Jerusalem, the Christians recognised that that was the abomination that causes desolation, as particularly Luke had warned them. And so they did what Jesus said and they ran away. And meanwhile, people like the Sadducees, who decided to stick it out in Jerusalem, they were totally wiped out. So the temple would be destroyed. Uh, if you think about it, for a Jew listening to this, uh, it's, it's stunning, terrible, unbelievable news been trying to think of, of an equivalent of what it would be like for, for us to be told something like this sort of news. And um, it's like, imagine, imagine if someone found the bones of Jesus. Okay, they found them, and then some kind of DNA testing or something that could prove it was Jesus' bones. How would you feel? 
How'd you feel? If it were proved that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it'd be like having your guts ripped out, wouldn't it? It'd mean that the very heart of your religion has been ripped out. Well, it must have felt something like that for these Jews as they listened to Jesus. Their temple is doomed. That is unimaginable. I mean, how is anyone going to come into the presence of God anymore? How will people have access to the presence of God? Does this mean God is no longer present with his people? And that's what Jesus goes on to address next. He talks about what comes after the destruction of the temple. First, he says, it will be a time of judgment. He uses Old Testament pictures of judgment on the nations. He says it's going to be a time of judgment. Verse 24. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. It's pictures, as I say, from Isaiah of judgment on Babylon and judgment on the nations. There will be judgment. But then Jesus says that he himself will come into the presence of God. He says... The Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven. Now, now, we've done this a few times before. It's very, very important that we get this clear. When the Son of Man comes on the clouds, he is not coming to earth. It comes from Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. And in Daniel chapter 7, when the Son of Man comes on the clouds, he is coming into the presence of God. All the eyes that see him are all the eyes in heaven. So Jesus himself says... I will come into the presence of God. Men will see me come into the presence of God. Verse 26. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now, if you want to see this fulfilled, you need to look to Revelation chapter 5. Because in Revelation chapter 5, John and, uh, and all the, the people in heaven, they see Jesus, the, the lamb who looks like he's been slain, who looks like a lion, who, as he comes to the throne of God and receives the scroll and opens up judgment on the world. This is fulfilled in Revelation 5 as soon after the destruction of the temple, men see the Son of Man come. But Jesus says he will enter the presence of God. And then he says he will send out his messengers. And the word angel just means messenger. Okay? It doesn't necessarily mean heavenly angel. The word angel just means messenger. It's the ordinary word for messenger. And so Jesus is going to send his messengers out to the world to tell everyone about him and to gather in those who put their faith in him. To gather them where? Well, to gather them to himself. Verse 27. And he will send his angels, his messengers, and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Not just Jews, people from everywhere will be gathered. So can you see what's going to happen after the, destruction of after the destruction of the temple? There's judgment on the world. Jesus himself comes into the presence of God and he sends out his messengers to gather God's people from all nations to himself in God's presence. Do you get what that means? Do you get what that means? Jesus has told his disciples the temple will be destroyed. That leaves them wondering, is access to God now closed? Now Jesus has shown them it is not closed. It will not be closed. Why not? Because after the destruction of the temple, Jesus himself will be in the presence of God. And God's people will be gathered to him. So here's the point. Here's the point. Jesus takes the place of the temple. 
the temple will be destroyed, but it won't matter because people will have access to God through Jesus. Do you see how it works? Well, Jesus then uh, goes on to uh, continue answering the question to talk about the timing of it all. He says, first of all, that this will happen within one generation. Within the lifetime of the people who were there, it would all happen. Verse 28. Verse 28. Now, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so... When you see these things happening, you know that it's near, right at the door. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Okay, Jesus is perfectly clear about it. It will all happen within one generation. But, Jesus says, says, I don't know the exact time. He says God doesn't want anyone to know the exact time because he doesn't want you messing around until you see the sign or doing your own thing until the time. He wants you, Scout's motto, be prepared. All right? He wants you always prepared. And so he doesn't want you to know the time. Verse 32. And no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the cock crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. All right. Well, do you see the point of Mark chapter 13? Within one generation, the temple would be finished. Its place would be taken by Jesus. The Son of Man would come to God on the clouds. From then on, the elect would be gathered to him. No one would come to God via the temple anymore. Now people would only come to God through Jesus. All right, it's pretty dense. I see some eyes rolling into the back of their heads. Give yourself a little shake because I just want to show you one more section. All right, I've got to show you this last section because this is just too beautiful to leave alone. I know it's a lot of reading, a lot of work. Just kind of shake, open your eyes at least, pretend you're with me, all right? I want to show you one more section. Okay, chapter 14. We get a couple of responses to Jesus, to this new temple. We see the terrible, terrible response of Judas as he betrays Jesus But sandwiched in the story, and this is just magnificent, sandwiched in the story we see another unnamed woman. Another woman who, and it's almost the same words, does what she can. Another woman who gives her all. Only this woman, unlike the widow in chapter 12, she doesn't give her all to the temple. This woman gives her all to Jesus. Chapter 14 and verse 1. So we start with the Judas plot. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. Okay, that's Judas' plot. Now, in between. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, 
Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you and you can help them at any time you want, but you'll not always have me. And here's where he uses almost exactly the same words as with the widow. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And then back to the Judas story. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So they watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now you'll see again the sandwich technique that we've seen Mark use a lot of times. Do you see that there? We start with one story and there's a story sandwiched in between. Uh, the story of the woman sandwiched into the story of Judas. And here it's, um, it's got to be like a contrast or something, doesn't it? The, uh, the, the, the terrible story of Judas' reaction to Jesus with the, the beautiful story of the woman. I'll tell you what. Did you also notice the transition here? In chapter 12... You've got your woman who gives her all for the temple. Chapter 13, we're told the temple will be destroyed. Its place is taken by Jesus. And now chapter 14, there's this woman who gives her all for Jesus. There's this transition of devotion from the temple to Jesus. I don't know about you, but I reckon this is just superb. Uh, The way Mark has put this together is so clever. And he's vividly making the point, don't you think? The temple's time is up. Jesus takes its place, and so now the focus of worship has moved. Now we worship God through Jesus alone. Now we come into God's presence through Jesus alone. And so now we should give our all to Jesus. All right. Well, let's think about this passage then for ourselves. This passage has a number of important implications for us. A number of very significant applications. And I want to focus on three. Now put them there on your outline. The first implication is this. The destruction of the temple in 70 AD was the end of biblical Judaism. This is the time where you close the book on the first two-thirds of your Bible. The destruction of the temple in 70 AD is the end of the Old Testament, of that old way of coming into relationship with God. God did establish in Judaism the only true religion in the history of the world. God did establish in Judaism a true way of coming to his presence. God did establish in the Old Testament a true way of having access to himself. By coming to the temple, by offering the sacrifices commanded in God's word, a Jew could be really forgiven and really made acceptable to God, really brought into relationship with God. And even after Jesus' death and resurrection, it was still possible. There was this period of overlap when both the the old and the new ways were valid. Maybe a Jew might not have heard about Jesus in 50 AD or something. They could still come to the temple, still offer their sacrifices, and God would still accept them. But that time finished in 70 AD. There is now no temple. There are now no sacrifices. Biblical Judaism is finished. There is no way to come to God now 
except through Jesus. What does that mean? It means Jews need to hear about Jesus. They're not okay on their own. They are not okay without Jesus. The Old Testament is finished as a way of being in relationship with God. Jews, like all people, cannot be saved except through faith in Jesus. It means that that, you close off that first two-thirds of your Bible as a way of being in relationship with God. It's the old way, superseded, gone, past. That's why we really need to keep on supporting people like Paul Morris, people who are trying to tell Jewish people about Jesus. That's the first implication. Now, the second, second implication of this passage is this. Buildings are not sacred. You do not come into God's presence by coming into a building. It doesn't matter how old the building is, it doesn't matter how pretty it is, it doesn't matter what it's made of. That, uh, that feeling that you get as you walk into a beautiful old cathedral with the sun shining in through the stained glass windows and the lovely old pews, you know what that feeling is? That's the feeling you get when you walk into a beautiful old cathedral with the sun shining in through the stained glass windows and the beautiful old pews. Okay? It's not the feeling of coming into the presence of God. That's true of this building. This is a nice building. But we need to be clear, this is not a holy building. God is not contained in this building. Now, this so-called sanctuary up here, it's not some inner holy place where you meet with God. With all these cords lying around here, you might fall over and die if you come up here, but, uh, but that's got nothing to do with this area being holy. This is not a holy building. And if we knock this church down and build up another church here, it won't be a holy building either. Hopefully it'll be a useful building, hopefully even more useful than this one. But it won't be sacred. God won't be in it in any special way. There was a building where you could meet with God. It was called the temple. But the time of the temple was finished in 70 AD. You go there today, you'll find a pagan mosque. You cannot come to God through a building anymore. You can sit in a church building every day of your life, every week of your life, for all of your life and be no closer to God than the worst pagan who's never seen a church building in his life. You cannot come into the presence of God by sitting in a church. You come to the presence of God only by relying on the Lord Jesus Christ. Clear enough? Okay, final implication. Final implication is this. We should give our all for Jesus. Like that woman in uh, chapter 12 gave her all for the temple. Like that woman in chapter 14 gave her all for the Lord Jesus. We should generously, sacrificially give of ourselves and our lives and our time and our money for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, unlike that woman in chapter 14, we don't have Jesus physically present with us. Uh, We can't grab an expensive bottle of Chanel number 5 and pour it all over his head or something like that. I remember on the way to church here one time, Carmelina dropping a bottle of Oscar de la Renta and perfume going all over me, but I don't even think that was an expression of devotion, that particular one. But uh, uh, still, we uh, we can't express our devotion towards Jesus in quite that way, but, but we can express devotion to Jesus, can't we? By obeying his commands, by listening carefully to what he says in his word, but by loving his people who have his spirit, by, by, by being part of his mission, 
by working and giving to help Jesus' messengers as they go to the four corners of the world to gather the elect to him. Friends, friends, Jesus has brought you into the very presence of God. Jesus has brought you into a relationship with God that nothing can ever take away from you. He's worth loving. He's worth obeying. Not with a, not with a part-time love and obedience. Not with, a, not with a grudging love and obedience. Not with a leftover love and obedience after everything else has been done. But with a lavish, a, a generous, a, a sacrificial love and obedience. Let me ask you, when was the last time that you showed lavish love to the Lord Jesus? When was the last time that you showed even, even wasteful love to the Lord Jesus? You know, I was at a funeral. I uh, did a funeral for my great uncle on Thursday and uh, a distant relative of mine by marriage is going um, as a missionary to uh, Yemen. A pretty young girl. She'd be well, younger than me, I think. And... Um, and people were saying to her, and she's a psychologist, and people were saying to her, why would you go to Yemen? Why would you chuck, out, chuck away your life like that? Because they're all pagans. She just said, oh, I love Jesus. I want to serve him. Everyone thought, what a waste. You know, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. When was the last time that you, you saw a need... And you say, well, I can't afford it, can't afford the time, can't afford the money, but whammo, I'm just going to do it. For Jesus' sake, you did it anyway. When was the last time you offered your all in worship to Jesus? Can I encourage you, do it again soon. Be lavish about it. Let me stingy about it. Be lavish about it. Jesus deserves it. Okay, well, Jesus is our temple. Jesus brings us into the presence of God. What does that mean? It means the end of biblical Judaism. It means buildings are not holy. It means we ought to give our all to the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank and praise you that he has entered your presence and sent out his messengers to gather all his elect, including us, into your presence. We thank you that he is our temple and we have access to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you'll so work in us by your spirit that we give our, ourselves, our lives, our all to the Lord Jesus. And we pray it in his name.